As a priest, often I receive calls from a person seeking a pastoral or sacramental visit for someone else, such as an elderly parent or relative who might be in a hospital or nursing home. Or sometimes, perhaps, the person in question has already died and they are inquiring about funeral arrangements. And one of the things that they will often tell me or say to the answering machine when they leave a message is that such and such person that they want me to visit or to offer a funeral mass for was, quote unquote, a lifelong Catholic. That exact phrase, a lifelong Catholic. It's amazing how often that turn of phrase recurs in these types of conversations. I don't know why someone would say that, as if it makes any difference whether the person in question was a Catholic for 80 years or for eight days, as to whether a priest will go out to see them or offer them the sacraments of the church. Truth be told, Father Pollard or myself or any priest that we know would be more than happy to visit even a person who wasn't Catholic at all if that's what they wanted. Jesus tells us the last will be first and the first will be last. But too many of us still look at the faith through a worldly lens. The world teaches us that we have to justify ourselves and even promote ourselves in order to get ahead, or even sometimes it seems just to get what we deserve. If you get a book about job interviewing, there's always a chapter or section devoted to answering that dreaded question. So tell me, what's your greatest weakness? And the advice just boils down to essentially lying. Turn it into an opportunity to talk about your strengths. Admit nothing. Say something like, I just can't relax until I get the job done properly. (laughs) The first reading praises God's great love for us. It says, but you have mercy on all because you can do all things and you overlook people's sins so that they may repent. For you love all things and that you, that you, that are and loathe nothing that you have made. For what you have hated, you would not have fashioned. God doesn't love us because of what we do. Rather, he loves us because he created us. He created us in an act of love. Even when we sin, he doesn't love us any less. It's because he loves us that he doesn't want us to sin. It's because he loves us that sometimes he has to punish us because of our sins in order that we might repent. Even when someone is consigned to hell because of their sins, it's because God loves that person enough to respect their unfortunate but free choice to reject the mercy that he was offering all along. It's hard to actually have the humility to truly accept God's love in this sense, to recognize that we are not loved because of whatever good we might do, but rather to recognize that the good that we might do comes from the fact that God loved us in the first place, and to recognize that God still loves us in spite of whatever bad we might do because the law and the commandments are there for our good in the first place. God hates sin because it's bad for us, not because it hurts him. As Christians, we live in that tension between our understanding of ourselves as beloved sons and daughters of God, saved by a grace that is not of ourselves, and our all-too-human tendency to define ourselves either by our sins or by our accomplishments. In the Gospel reading, we are introduced to Zacchaeus, a Jew who collected taxes for the Romans against his fellow Jews. 
Tax collectors like Zacchaeus could easily become rich on the commissions and graft that they were able to extract from the people. As we see elsewhere in the gospel, tax collectors, along with prostitutes, were considered by definition to be sinners, and hence they were outcasts amongst their own countrymen. They were like traitors or collaborators. Zacchaeus, because he is so short, has to climb a tree in order to see Jesus in the crowd. That's symbolic because in many parts of the New Testament, the cross that Jesus was crucified on is referred to as a tree. Unlike Jesus, however, who hung innocently on the cross, Zacchaeus is not without his own wrongdoing. Indeed, later in the passage, Zacchaeus promises to make restitution four times over against all of those he has extorted, admitting the severity of his many sins. Luke uses the Greek word phantasa, which was a Greek idiom for someone who extorted or defrauded others in order to describe these sins. It's derived from the first term suko, meaning fig, and fantesa, meaning revealer, meaning most likely someone who shook fig trees in order to steal the fruit. That's where the phrase comes from, just as a tax collector like Zacchaeus would have shaken down people for money. Now, what kind of tree did Zacchaeus climb? He climbed a sycamore tree, which in the Greek is referred to as a sucomoria. Again, that same Greek term, suko, meaning fig. This was a fig-bearing sycamore tree. So we see that, in one sense, this place where Zacchaeus finds himself on top of a tree was, in fact, quite fitting. The man who idiomatically steals figs is perched up on a fig tree. He's hung up on a tree that stands in for Christ's cross. But unlike Christ, that tree symbolizes his sins of extorting very well. From the perspective of natural justice, he deserved to be crucified on that tree. But what does Christ do? He calls him and says, Zacchaeus, come down quickly. Christ reaches out to him not because Zacchaeus deserves forgiveness, but because Christ wants to forgive him. Christ wants to save us, save him because, and to save him, Zacchaeus, because he too was a descendant of Abraham. Interestingly, in the Hebrew, his name, Zacchaeus, actually means righteous one, and that's what Jesus calls him. This is to show us that even despite Zacchaeus' sins, it did not obviate the fact that he was from the chosen people. Just as we, in baptism, not of ourselves but by grace, are made into brothers and sisters of Christ and sons and daughters of the Father. Because of that, God always beckons us to allow him into our homes into our hearts, no matter how grave our sins. There are some who, upon hearing this, might think that this emphasis on God's primordial love for us, outside of either our accomplishments or our sins, might breed a kind of hollow self-esteem or an indifference to sin. That it's akin to the latest educational fads where every student gets a gold sticker simply for turning in a paper with their name on it. Or every kid gets a trophy just for showing up and playing or where parents refuse to scold their children or even to say no to them because it might bruise their fragile egos. But that's not what God's love for us is like at all. When we understand that God truly loves us because he alone creates us and sustains us, then we have the genuine humility to recognize or to have real self-esteem that comes not from our own power, but 
from God. Two benefits flow from this. One, we recognize that whatever good we do comes from God first, not from ourselves. Just as Christ called Zacchaeus down from the tree even before he promised to divest himself of his ill-gotten wealth. Second, we recognize that whenever we sin, we are betraying who we truly are. The person who understands themselves to be a beloved child of God is not the person who rests content with their sins. On the contrary, it is the man or woman who has lost hope, who defines themselves by their sins, and thus cannot realistically imagine being or doing anything better, who then takes a perverse pride in their sins and becomes mired in them all the more deeply. To believe these things is to gain genuine humility, a humility, in fact, that elevates us because we, are, we see our human dignity in a totally clear way, without pretense or cynicism, a humility such that we neither shrink with fear nor swell with pride when we hear the words, today salvation is coming into your home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.